This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, The Journey in God, recorded December 13, 1998, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning, I thought I'd talk about a Sufi saying concerning enlightenment, and it's popularly, popularly <coughs> translated as, The journey to God has an end, but the journey in God has no end. And it's a very useful uh, saying because it helps dispel some misconceptions about what happens after enlightenment. And these misconceptions arise from superficial understanding of certain teachings that you'll run across in mystical literature from all traditions. For instance, there's a whole category of teachings that talk about the death of the subjective self or the ego. Uh, Sufi, uh, the, the Sufi Rumi uh, writes, no one will find his way to the court of magnificence until he is annihilated. Uh, the Kabbalist uh, Abraham Abulafi writes, the Torah is not preserved except by one who kills himself in the tents of wisdom. And the great Hindu saint Lali Shwari, she says, When I realized my oneness with the name of God, my I-ness was obliterated. So these are very strong, direct teachings about this death of the self. And then there's a whole other category of teachings about the disappearance of the objective world. Here's Rumi again. He says, The pillar of this world, O beloved, is heedlessness. Wakefulness is this world's bane. Wakefulness comes from that world. When it prevails, this world is laid flat. So, to translate a little bit here, heedlessness is just another way of saying ignorance. When we are heedless of reality, we are ignoring it. Wakefulness is awakening, enlightenment, gnosis. So he says that the pillar of this world, this world is based on ignorance. And when wakefulness comes, this world is laid flat, vanishes, disappears. Here's the Buddhist Lakanvatara Sutra. The insight of the wise who move about in the realm of imagelessness and its solitude is pure. That is, for the wise, all things are wiped away, and even the state of imagelessness ceases to exist. And finally, here's Shankara, the great Hindu mystic, writing about his awakening. He says, where is this universe? Who took it away? Has it merged into something else? A while ago I beheld it. Now it exists no longer. This is wonderful indeed. So when we take these teachings out of context, uh, you might get the impression that they're talking about some sort of uh, complete extinction of everything, like a, like a physical vacuum, a, a total void in which there, nothing's appearing, just an absolute nothingness, something the way materialists uh, often envision death. You know, when death comes, it's just going to be an inconceivable, absolute, blank, empty, nothing. 
uh, you, you can see how this might bring an end to suffering. I mean, there'll be nothing, there won't be any suffering. But for many people, this doesn't sound wonderful indeed. In fact, it sounds a little frightening. And so when these teachings are taken out of context and presented this way, it creates really an unnecessary fear of enlightenment. As you walk a spiritual path, uh, and as you get close to enlightenment, uh, fear will uh, almost certainly arise. There are things to be afraid of, but it's not to be afraid of that at the other side, there's going to be just this total extinction, emptiness, nothingness. The fear comes from realizing that there has to be a total letting go, uh, a surrender of control, a, a kind of leap into the unknown, which is unknown is not a nothingness in the literal sense of nothingness. And so that will arouse that kind of fear. This is, uh, it's the same fear we all have about facing the unknown when things are unknown. We get anxious and nervous. But there's no point in uh, complicating that by giving you uh, or anybody a false idea of what is going to be on the other side. So when people hear that the journey in God has no end, everybody kind of breathes a sigh of relief. Ah, well, that means things are going to continue. There's going to be something there after all. It's not like this total vacuum. But this can also easily be misunderstood. And when we say the journey to God has an end and the journey in God has no end, just to hear that tends to de-radicalize the path. And uh, you could conclude from this things like that enlightenment is just sort of some peak experience, that you just have this peak experience and it passes away and uh, you might have several peak experiences. Uh, or you might conclude that enlightenment is kind of a stage in a continuing growth process, that you reach the stage of enlightenment, and then from there you go on to do other things. Uh, sometimes this is horribly uh, misinterpreted, and I've mentioned this before. There was a book in the Bodhi Tree, when I used to work at the Bodhi Tree bookstore, that was titled Winning Through Enlightenment. And the idea was, see, you get enlightenment, and then you could go out and get all the things you wanted. Uh, <clears throat> but this is misunderstood by spiritual people, people and uh, some spiritual people, spiritual teachers even, who should know better. This is what the authors of an otherwise excellent book, Spectrum of Ecstasy, say. And by the way, Spectrum of Ecstasy is a book that in our practitioners group we're reading. So this is not uh, to, to knock the book itself. It's really a very good book. But they do say at one point... There is no sudden breakthrough that remains forever. There are only sudden glimpses. But these glimpses encourage us to see more. And so gradually we develop the ability to integrate these experiences of unconditioned being into our lives. Now, this isn't true. They are generalizing from their experience. They've only had little glimpses and they've worked on integrating them into their lives and so forth. But here's, these are Buddhists, by the way. This is a Buddhist text, Tibetan Buddhist text. Here's what the Buddha said about enlightenment. <coughs> For a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done, and not, not more remains for him to do. And Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, he puts it this way. He says, When the kingdom appears to the soul, and it is recognized... There is no further need for preaching or instruction. 
It has learned enough and it has at once secured eternal life. And finally, the great Hindu mystic Ananda Moyamai, she says, you must seek what will take you to that state of undifferentiated being, of oneness, where nothing remains to be known to be attained. And my own gnosis of August 13th, 1983, has not wavered in the slightest. That's a bad way of putting it because it sounds like there's something there that couldn't waver, but it's more like you could say uh, space is totally unaffected by whatever you put into the space. You cannot change space. It's not like something's there that doesn't change, it's nothing's there, and that's why it cannot waver, change, be affected in any possible way. So, then what does it mean to say the journey in God has no end? All these mystics, including myself, have just testified to that there is a kind of radical, definite break. <clears throat> so let's take a closer look at this saying, the second part of this saying, the journey in God has no end. And uh, to do this, let's look at a more precise translation. Uh, William Chittick, who's the great translator of both Rumi and another great Sufi, Ibn Arabi, who translated this book, The Sufi Path of Love, uh, he uh, translates Rumi's version of this in, in more precise kinds of language. And his translation goes like this. He's translating, instead of journey has no end, the word is limit here. What can I say about the stations of those who have attained union except that they are infinite, while the stations of the travelers have a limit. The limit of the travelers is union, but what could be the limit of those in union? That is, that union which cannot be marred by separation. No ripe grape ever again becomes green, and no mature fruit ever again becomes raw. So, first of all, these last two lines here about... Uh, that union which cannot be marred by separation and no ripe grape ever becomes green and no mature fruit ever again becomes raw uh, says very clearly that enlightenment is not just some glimpse that passes that there is a uh, you don't go back but this still is not referring to any sort of void or vacuum or total extinction or anything like that what is extinguished are limits the, the one who has reached union has no limits. It's limits that are extinguished. And limits uh, is just another word for talking about boundaries or distinctions, uh, things that we've talked about a lot. More precisely, we could say it's not even that limits or boundaries or distinctions are extinguished, but the belief, the delusion, the perception that these limits, distinctions, and boundaries are real, that they actually really exist in the world. And so, uh, Rumi says elsewhere, all forms are born from imagination. All forms, any sort of form, mental forms, uh, visual forms, sound forms, the form is only a form if it has a boundary, if it's distinguishable from something else. 
And what Rumi is saying is that that distinction, that boundary that separates one thing from another is imaginary. It doesn't truly exist. And of course, the most important boundary uh, that is abolished, abolished in the sense of belief that it actually truly exists, is the boundary between I and other, between self and world, between subject and object. And that's what Rumi means when he says, those in union have no limits. There is no limit to self, to, to I, to a person. And there's no limit because when we're deluded, we have a limit because we have a limited identification with a certain set of phenomena that arise and pass away. All our body sensations, our thoughts, our emotions, whatever you consider yourself, there's a boundary around that that separates it out from something else. And this will vary, by the way, from individual to individuals and varies quite a lot from culture to culture, which gives us a clue that this boundary is not fixed. So uh, most people would say, well, so I am this body and these thoughts are arising in here and this and that, but I'm not this book. So there's some distinction, some limit, something holds your sense of who you are within some container. So when he says, what could be the limit of someone in union? Union means union between I and other, self and world, subject and object, servant and God. To attain union is to realize your true identity, which is with the ground of everything that arises, which I would say consciousness itself, that, that, uh, that primordial awareness, as the Buddhists put it, or a Buddha mind, or Allah, who is the hearing and the seeing. Not that Allah hears and sees, Allah is the hearing, the seeing, the knowing. Whatever hearing, seeing, and knowing is going on, that is a lie. And as Ibn Arabi, another great Sufi, says, since, since there's only one knower, that's a lie, who are you? It's another way of saying, where's the limit? Do you really find a boundary, a limit here? But it's not just that, uh, that boundary, that's the most important one, that's the one that brings liberation from the bondage of suffering, it's really all boundaries. And this is what's so radical about enlightenment. All boundaries, all limits, all distinctions whatsoever. So we can look at some categories of boundaries to get some idea of what this is. For instance, spatial boundaries or limits that seem to separate one object from, from another, like, let's say, this book and this clock. <coughs> it seems clear that these aren't the same thing, that they are distinct, clearly distinct. And that's what Rumi means when he says realization, uh, wakefulness, lays this world flat. These two things, and I have to use language to point your attention here, don't look any different to me now than they did before August 13th, 1983. They don't look any different in terms of the, the 
the visual appearance. But I don't see any boundary between them. I don't see any distinction between them. I see them as fundamentally, ultimately, just consciousness. That's what's different. And this is very important. It's not that, that the, all the visual appearances disappear, or sounds no longer, sounds are heard, and so forth. It's something else by this world is laid flat. It, it, a, another uh, uh, analogy might be becoming lucid in a dream. And in a dream, especially, let's say, a nightmare, the reason you respond with fear and terror and so forth is you think it is real. And you think you then are living in a real world. And if you became lucid at that moment, nothing necessarily would change. Maybe you're facing, you know, the, the alien from outer space who's, you know, with the, the 20 red eyes and the, or better yet, let's take an image from, from the traditions, Kali, one of our uh, members of our group showed up on Halloween dressed as Kali with big red tongue and skulls around her neck. You know, Kali is this wrathful deity. Maybe in your dream, there you're facing Kali. She usually has a sword of some sort because her function is to kill you. And that's a, that's a positive function spiritually, mystically, because that's the killing of the ego, the annihilation that Rumi talked about. But there you are in the dream and the, you are living in a real world. And then if you become lucid, nothing need change in terms of the appearance, but that world will be laid flat because suddenly you'll say, oh, it's just all consciousness. There's not, Kali really isn't here as some objective being who's going to kill some objectively existing self. You see what I mean? So what happens in the dream, the distinctions disappear in the sense you recognize this is all a dream. It's all consciousness. It's all mind. It has no other existence apart from that. When we are deluded, we experience ourselves. This isn't just a question of some intellectual philosophical idea. We actually experience ourselves as moving around as some sort of finite entities around all these finite objects. <coughs> and what realization shows you is that what we call this physical space in which supposedly all these objects are, that space is really, we could say, just the physical dimension of consciousness. You aren't the being moving around, you are the space itself in which everything moves around. And Ramana Maharshi puts this so beautifully, I thought I'd, I'd uh, quote him here, because uh, he addresses this. Uh, he's getting a little frustrated here. People think that mystics don't get frustrated, but these people are questioning him about the heart. And the conversation starts because they keep saying, well, is the heart, whether you, the heart's in the chest? And he says, no, no, that, that's just a way of talking. We're not talking about a physical heart. We're talking about the radiant heart, the heart of all being. And then he goes on and he gives this example. He says, uh, people don't understand this. They can't help thinking in terms of the physical body and the world. For instance, you say, I have come to this ashram all the way from my country beyond the Himalayas. But that is not the truth. Where is a coming or a going or any movement whatever for the one all-pervading spirit which you really are? You are where you have always been. It is your body that has moved 
or was conveyed from place to place till it reached this ashram. This is the simple truth, but to a person who considers himself a subject living in an objective world, it appears as something altogether visionary. So, it's been a tremendous shift here. You aren't going anywhere. You never move through any kind of space. Appearances, you could say, move around through space. This hand moves around through space. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a, a dummy. I can see that. But you don't move through any space. You are the space in which everything moves. By the way, all this stuff you can start to check out right now. You know? Wherever you go, there's, there's space. Why don't you try to leave the space that you truly are and see what happens? See if you can do it. Actually just leave physical space. Since you aren't that space, it'd be easy to get away from it. Try that for a while. Then uh, he's talking about boundaries in time, limits in time. When Rumi says the limit of the travelers is union, he means that the path has a limit. It has an end. And the end is union. Once Gnosis is attained, the path is over. So this is in time. You, you start on a spiritual path, and uh, however long it takes you, you do your practices, years go by, uh, months go by, whatever, however long. And then when you finally attain enlightenment, uh, almost all mystics who we have some record of have a clearly marked day or time. They, it, it happens, you know, like August 13th or... Uh, August 7th, 1936. Gee, I'm losing. 36? Was it what? I thought you said it was 39. No, no, it's either 36 or 7. Anyway, that was Dr. Wolf's August 7th. He remembered exactly the day. And you will find Ramana Maharshi knew exactly the day and almost to the hour. I don't think he had clocks, but it was in the afternoon someplace in his uncle's house on such and such a day. So there is a, a limit in time. But that comes to an end. But it comes to an end because the one who's been traveling the path comes to an end. But consciousness never comes to an end. Consciousness was there while you were traveling the path. Consciousness is there after the path comes to an end. Consciousness has always been there. Always will be there. Better to talk about it not even in terms of consciousness will always be. That sounds like consciousness is in, in itself in time. But consciousness is outside of time, who you truly are. As long as we think we are time-bound beings, then just like we feel we are in space, we feel like we are in time. And the whole cosmos is unfolding in time and we're going along with that. To realize you are consciousness itself is to realize that you are where both time and the cosmos unfold. Does everybody get this? Again, this is something you can start to investigate for yourself. You can start to look at limits, for instance, to time. We've talked about this before on Sundays as well, you know. Where is the limit of time? I mean, where is the boundary between the past and the present and the future? Things like that. Where are all these boundaries? Are they real? We meditate here for 10 minutes. There's a clock that goes click, click, click. What's counting something? What's it counting? Can you ever find what it's counting? 
you will never find what's counting. It's just movement, movement going on in space, and we we invent another parameter, time, and we count, we measure the rate of this movement. But it's just it's like a, having a ruler. That's all. A friend of mine uh, uh, just sent me a paper written by a young uh, physicist uh, down in Palo Alto. Uh, astonishing, a very short paper showing you can do all the physics about time. You don't need time at all. This is why Rumi says, or asks rhetorically, what could be the limit of those in union? And why Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Interesting way of phrasing that. I, I, I don't know if that reflects the original Greek or not, but it's very interesting. Before Abraham was, Abraham, of course, was the first prophet here in this line. I am. I am, presently, present tense. And, you know, the Zen masters describe enlightenment as knowing your original face before you were born. These are all ways of expressing this fact. Birth and death and all this stuff happens within consciousness. Consciousness is not bound by any of this. Then finally, and probably most subtly, Rumi talks about what we might call limits on spiritual cognition. It's a, I couldn't think of a, a less technical word here, but uh, limits on, we could say, what is disclosed. So when he says, what can I say about the stations of those who have attained union, except that they are infinite? He's talking about several things all compacted into this one idea of station, and I have to digress for a moment, because to understand this, you have to understand that the word station in Sufism is a technical term. And it, uh, it can either refer to states that a seeker experiences on a spiritual path or stages that a spiritual seeker goes through. So the stations of, of seekers is limited. But for those who have attained Gnosis, the stations are unlimited. So what does this mean? States are limited in two ways. First of all, they're limited in time by duration. A state doesn't last. So, uh, maybe many of you might have had this experience, whether in a spiritual context or not, but a, what we call a unity experience, where there's suddenly this realization that, that underneath all this, there's a kind of harmony, a wholeness, that everything is connected. It's usually a very beautiful, accompanied by beauty. You see the beauty of the world. People experience this in nature, watching a sunset or so forth. And it's like, uh, it's like this world becomes a little transparent to a deeper reality. And you experience this. It's an experience. It can be very emotional and beautiful, but there's also a cognitive element. You're seeing something true about the world in this. But that experience passes, usually. And you come back to the city, you know, and you get all uh, involved in your job or whatever, and you say, oh, gee, last summer when I was out there in the Grand Canyon, I had this wonderful experience. I knew something, but it's past. Now, what is disclosed in that experience is true about the world. It is a harmonious whole underneath. But it is limited 
the cognition, the disclosure has been limited because there's more to reality. Usually a unity experience does not disclose the emptiness of phenomena as well. So you're sort of getting, you're getting a true insight into the nature of reality, but to get, there are deeper insights to be had, and you have to go deeper to get those sorts of insights. So there's a limit to the state in the sense of what is disclosed in the state, and there's a limit in the state in terms of the time which it lasts. But in Gnosis, what is disclosed is not limited by any state. What is known, the fundamental nature of reality is known no matter what state you're in. So you could be meditating and concentrated and alert, or you could be groggy and fatigued and tired, asleep, awake, napping. It's always, the reality is always just obvious and apparent. There's no, it's not limited by any state. This is why Ibn Arabi writes, he's another great Sufi, as I said, the Gnostics never cease witnessing forms within themselves and outside themselves, and that is nothing but the self-disclosure of the real. In Sufi terms, all this cosmos is a divine self-disclosure. It is, it is God, it is consciousness revealing its potentials, all the infinite potentials contained in this consciousness. And so the reason time comes about and cosmos seems to unfold in time is because if all the potentiality was manifested all at once, it would all wipe itself out and you wouldn't see anything. Everything would be unmanifest. It's a, it's a little bit like if you take a, uh, a negative and a positive uh, photographic transparencies and you put them together, they cancel. Because every single distinction would all be manifest at once and you'd have you'd have just a, a solid distinction and nothing would stand out of that. So the only way uh, the, 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 the great potential of Allah can be manifested is, is sequentially. Oh, this appears. Oh, this appears. Oh, wow, this appears. But it's all the same thing. Whether we think it's good or bad or beautiful or ugly is totally irrelevant. It's all the same thing. And this is true in other traditions. Here's what uh, the Tibetan Buddhist uh, Bokar Rinpoche says. When illusion ceases, appearances continue to exist, but they are no longer assimilated as objects grasped by a subject. They are perceived as the manifested aspects of the mind or natural radiance of mind. That's another same thing, another way of putting it. All this is the natural radiance of consciousness, of mind. It's what mind does, you know. It's, it's, it's mind showing off, if you like, <laughs> what it can do. Here's Lali Shwari again. In the undifferentiated consciousness, the play of birth and death goes on, but ordinary people misunderstand it. It is simply the play of Chitti Shakti. Chitti is... Uh, uh, consciousness, Shakti is the power of consciousness. It's the play of the power of consciousness. So, what could be the, the uh, limit of the stations of those in union? They are unlimited. They, they have no limit because nothing is hidden. But to a deluded person, things remain hidden. 
and things are revealed in this state or that state, other, certain things are revealed. That's why we practice to attain states, to begin to get some insight. But ultimately, states are irrelevant. Spiritual stages are also limited. They're limited as long as the seeker is in a stage and the goal hasn't been attained. Something's missing. That's the limit of being in a stage. So maybe I've attained a stage of uh, true detachment from things. Uh, that's a kind of a plateau. Usually don't slide back. It's not quite that simple. The path is more spiral. But over time, you find, uh, I found anyway, that I was less and less attached to material possessions and so forth. And so this is like kind of a progress on the path. Well, this is great, and this is, there's nothing wrong with this. It should happen, but still that stage is limited because the goal has not been attained. There's something missing from that stage. But, as Ibn Arabi says, the Gnostic has no goal. His vastness is the vastness of the real. And the real has no goal in himself, which his being might ultimately reach. The real is witnessed by the Gnostic, so he has no ultimate goal in his witnessing. But other than the Gnostic, witnesses his own possibility. Hence he stands in a state or station which in his eyes may come to an end or change or cease to exist. <clears throat> so the stations reached by ultimately by the Gnostic is no station. Uh, let's unpack this a little bit because there's a lot in this. It's, it's kind of subtle. The Gnostic has no goal. His vastness is the vastness of the real, and the real has no goal in himself which his being might ultimately reach. In other words, this divine self-disclosure isn't going to come to an end. It's not like God's going to show you everything and there'll be nothing left, and then that'll be the end of the performance. This is a performance, but there's no end to the performance because God's potential is infinite. So the performance goes on infinitely. It's not, it's not going someplace and, like to get to the end. In that sense, it's like a piece of music. I mean, a piece of music isn't rushing to get to the end, you know? Now, a piece of music does have an end. It's finite in time. But you don't sit in, 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 the, in the music and say, when's it going to end? When's it, where's it going? When's it going to end? The whole point about enjoying the music is the unfolding. And if all you're focused on is the end, well, you, know, you might as well go off and go to the bathroom and, you know, get some drinks down in the lobby and then come back and you get the last note, you know? I don't know, what does the Fifth Symphony end on? Dun, da, 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 and you'll come in for the dun, you'll say, ah, I got the end. You'll have missed everything. So, because all the Gnostic is doing, and this is still bound by language here, is is witnessing this, is being the space in which all this happens. But there's no goal in the witnessing. You're not witnessing in order to uh, write a paper, you know, in your uh, spiritual uh, uh, 101 class about what God did or is doing. Do you know what I mean? There's no goal in the witnessing. The witnessing itself is the delight, is the joy, is what it's all about. It doesn't have any other goal beyond that. And then he says, uh, but other than the Gnostic, that is a person who's still deluded, witnesses his, his own possibilities. So when 
Under delusion, when we're in a spiritual state or a station or a stage of growth, we are looking for what's going to come next. And you can check this out. Isn't this true? When am I going to get enlightened? When is this going to end and that happen? You see what I'm talking about? So there's this sense of a, of a, a focus on what's possible for me. And you're looking for this state or stage to end. You're looking for ignorance to end, for delusion to end. You can't wait until it ends if you're at a certain stage in a spiritual path. And so you're looking for it to change your state or station. You want it to change. You see the, the difference here of, of, of uh, this, this element of seeking, of grasping, of looking beyond what's going on, of thinking that what's going on has some meaning in relation to something else. So that's why he then finally says, ultimately, the, the station of the Gnostic is no station. Not to be in any particular stage of growth. There's no growth going on. There's, it's not going anywhere. So there's no limit to the stations. There's no, it's not limited by going on somewhere. And again, you'll find this in other traditions. The Buddhists uh, particularly call enlightenment abiding in non-abiding. It's the same thing. And this is very important because uh, a lot of people have another misconception about uh, enlightenment is that you finally reach the state or the stage of enlightenment. And sometimes mystics write that way because of just the problems with language. But it's a state of no state. It's a stage of no stage. It's not static. And that's the point. And that's really the point of this teaching that the uh, the journey in God has no end. The journey in God has no end, not because life goes on as usual, and you've had some peak experience, and so life goes on. It go, on the contrary, a boundary has been crossed, and it abolishes all boundaries. The limit has been reached, which transcends all limits. An end has been attained, which is the ending of all endings. And you might look at it this way. I, I'm struggling to get a, some sort of metaphor analogy. It's like being in a prison. This was actually my experience. Once I got onto the spiritual path and I began to feel my deluded life as a kind of prison. And uh, it's a little bit like... A, Teresa Avila's uh, metaphor of the interior uh, castle. You go through these rooms trying to get out, and you do go through different rooms, and then you're in this room, and this room discloses something else, and you get to that room, and it discloses something else, and sometimes you don't know where the door is to get to the next room, but you find the door, and you get to the next room, and you can look back, and you can see the rooms you've come through. And then finally, you get to the door, and there is a door, the ultimate door. The gate of emptiness, as the Zen Buddhists call it. And you go through that. And you turn around and you look back and there's no prison. There are no walls. There are no doors. It was all uh, an illusion. So that's the journey in God is totally open, totally free, totally unobstructed, without limits, without bounds, without distinctions. 
and one of my very favorite ways of expressing this, very short, comes from Longchenpa, the Tibetan Buddhist, and he says, At all times for the joyous yogi, it is the great flowing river yoga. The great flowing river yoga. A river that isn't going anywhere, doesn't have any end, isn't getting anywhere, isn't rushing beyond itself, or looking back, or all those things that Andrea talked about, the bird flying in the sky. So the point of this teaching is, A, don't be afraid of these teachings about the extinction of self, the annihilation of self, the death of the ego, or that the world is laid flat, or all things are wiped away. But don't settle for a less. And don't think, oh, well, the spiritual path is just another form of uh, uh, human growth or something like that. There is a line to be crossed. There is an end, a true end to, to the journey to God. And then beyond that, well, find out for yourself. So that's my talk for this morning. Any questions or comments? Yes. Um, isn't it also true that once you reach this this point that you don't become omniscient at that instant in, in union, that there's still a lot to learn? When mystics talk about omniscience, they mean omniscience about the true nature of reality. Not omniscience in the sense that you, your head is stuffed full of uh, knowledge like an Encyclopedia Britannica. And it's, it's worth exploring this a little bit more. Uh, this is what Ibn Arabi means when he says, whatever they witness is a divine self-disclosure. It's, it's knowing the fundamental nature of everything. And this is why they talk about there's nothing more to learn. There's nothing more to be attained. There's nothing more to know. So uh, you look at a clock, you look at a, a, a tree, you look at the sky, you look at a human being, a rhinoceros, it doesn't matter. The fundamental nature is known, apparent. No, nothing more to know about that. Intellectual knowledge, conceptual knowledge, thought knowledge is what? It's distinctions. That's what it is. And distinctions are the divine play. And it is impossible to know all this knowledge because it's all imaginary and there's no end to this kind of imagination. You see what I mean? It's not, from a mystic's point of view, true knowledge in the sense it's not gnosis, it has nothing to do with gnosis. There's just simply ways to divide up the world and then compare what you've done. You make all these distinctions and then you say, oh, this is similar to that, this is different from that, this equals that, this is more than that, this is less than that, this is greater than that, and you have a lot of fun doing this. But there, there's, it's not fixed, these aren't truths, because I can just take the board and divide up the world a different way, I just erase what I did before and start again, which is what happens in science for instance, of this century has taught us. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, let's not uh, 
uh, let's, uh, uh, we can't consider these the matter little bits of little hard atoms, so we'll just erase all that. We'll start making different kinds of distinctions, more paradoxical kinds of distinctions. So in that sense, there is no such thing as omniscience. A, it's, uh, it's, that isn't true knowledge, it's, that isn't gnosis, and B, it's endless. that is endless. If you could ever get to the intellectual truth of the world, the world would come to an end. You see what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, no, it's a question actually of, uh, in that sense, emptying your mind of intellectual knowledge and then keeping it empty in the sense that uh, whatever comes up, it's, there's no grasping onto or clinging onto, and it's just also just phenomena and perfectly willing to let it go if something more interesting uh, or complex or beautiful comes up. There's no feeling, oh, I now know something because I've read a, uh, uh, you know, a book on chemistry. And there's no sense that, oh, I've read a book on chemistry, and before that I read a book on, or let's say med modern medicine, and before that I, I read a book on shamanic medicine, and now I know that shamanic medicine is wrong and modern medicine is right. Now I have the, I'm a, I have the true knowledge. They're just different. And it's up to you to choose, you know, who you want to go to. You want to go to the, the, the shaman with the uh, drum that's been passed down uh, for generations from the original shaman, or do you want to go to the doctor with the diploma from Harvard Medical School on his wall? Big difference. No, no ultimately difference. I don't know, is that yeah. helpful? I had a question. Um, I was falling asleep the other night. This dream image kind of appeared. You know, it like came came to me, and then I woke up again. And the uh, I thought of that teaching of uh, you know everything is is our mind. It was like, well, where did this come from? Where did it just like my like a conscious self wasn't creating it. It just arose, and and then I thought of you know how the waking world and the dream world are the same. So everything in the waking world had that same quality. Where does it come from, I guess, was the question. Well, how, how, does that, how does everything arise? It's like, it's like a free gift or something. <laughs> so, I guess the question was, how, where does everything arise from? Well, that's a good question. First of all, you're, now you're doing dream yoga. That is what dream yoga is about. It's exactly that. So where does it arise? So now look for the source from which it comes. This is why uh, Ramana Maharshi's fundamental practice is uh, you see thoughts arise, particularly the I thought, and you follow them back to the source. Where did that I thought come from? And you look for uh, that origin. I mean, you didn't expect me to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Even if I could, I wouldn't to spoil the fun. <laughs> mm. 
You're right. Put most of them to sleep. <laughs> well, if there are no more questions or comments, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stay around and have some uh, tea. And I see somebody brought a cake. And check out the library. And until we see you again, peace to you all. <laughs>